0: My name is Charles Sargent. I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, Sins of Henry County." Now, in the last episode, three, I discussed the first two murders on November the 7th. And we ended where where Twiggly D, Twiggly Dumb and Dumber were actually arrested in Florida and was extradited back to Georgia. For the murders, for the murder of Eugene Barge, And we don't have any evidence uh, yet on Stephen Jeff Lee's murder. Today, in this episode, we're going to cover the murders of my book, Sins of Henry County, Marvin King, a high school band director at Jonesboro High School, just south of Atlanta, and one of his female students who is actually graduated and going to a junior college nearby. They were found murdered in the woods. Time of murder was 2.30 on a Thursday. Of course, a school day, when they should have been in school. And we'll get into that later. But first, this episode will cover the beginning of how that story uh, came about. On the morning of November the 7th, 1974, Jerry Banks got up, grabbed his puppy, grabbed his brother's shotgun, which he borrowed from his brother Perry. And the story goes that he went over to a Miss Slaughter's house that day and was going to do some chores on her house until about noon and then was going to go rabbit hunting. Now. Jerry's story is that after he finished at Miss Slaughter's house, him and his dog were in the woods near his house, off Quarry Road, Rock Quarry Road, and they were on an old roadbed which used to be Quarry Road till they they repaved they paved it they paved it for the first time. They took a, a bend out of the road and a deep. Uh, the dirt road went down into a hollow and they took that out and straightened the road out. And the old dirt road bed was still there. But Jerry's walking down the road bed and he sees his dog found something up ahead. And as he catches up with his puppy, he sees that it's two puddles for blood, pretty good size puddle for blood. But he sees some things there he just doesn't like, uh, maybe even possibly a piece of skull. And he looks over and sees that his puppy's over in a pine thicket through some briars and bushes and vines. and So he walks over and investigates what his puppy's got over there. And he finds uh, a bedspread spread out covering the two bodies. A white man and a young girl. Both shot in the back. Midsection. And then once in the back of the head. So Jerry runs up to the paved portion of Quarry Road, Rock Quarry Road, and starts flagging down vehicles. And back in the 70s, when people saw a black man standing by the side of the road with a shotgun, they didn't always stop to see what he wanted. He did flag down a couple cars. One stopped, said he wasn't interested, and didn't want to get involved. The other one said he would go call the sheriff, but Jerry didn't feel like he was sincere about it, so he kept flagging down cars. Finally he got one, a gentleman to stop by the name Andrew Everhart, who stated that uh, he was concerned it may have been, that there may have been a hunting accident, so he pulled over. Jerry explained to him that he had been hunting and found two bodies up in the woods and asked him if he would go call the sheriff. Mr. Everhart, said, Mr. Everhart said he would run down the road to a hotel and make a call from there and he'd be back. So Jerry told him to tell the sheriff. He said, tell the sheriff, I'll be standing right here by the road so he won't miss me. Now this was around 4.30 or so when Jerry had uh, flagged down Mr. Everhart. Somewhere closer to five, the sheriff's department arrived. The first officer on the scene was officer Dick Barnes. He was the first to arrive before long, uh, there was, they were crawling all over the place with officers, some from Henry County and some from Clayton County. Because the two victims were from Clayton County nearby, and it starts getting dark early, so they didn't have a whole lot of day- daylight. So they, they searched what they could and uh, recorded measurements of that and the other. Everything was pretty much measured from the location of the pool for blood. Distance from the road, the paved road. The distance from the blood over to where the bodies were found, and somewhere around nine o'clock at night, uh, they had removed the bodies to taken down to Carmichael's funeral home uh, to wait for an autopsy. Now, Jerry had walked home at that time. He didn't live that far away, and at midnight, sheriff's department came by and picked him up and asked him if he'd come down and make a statement. Well, they took him down to the uh, sheriff's trailer. The sheriff's department was occupying a trailer behind the courthouse as a temporary office. And Jerry sat there through the night, and no one ever took a statement until around about 4 o'clock when they finally got around to taking the statement because they had delivered him back home at 5 a.m. that Friday morning now. The uh, autopsy uh, was performed actually about three o'clock in the morning up into the early morning hours of Friday the next morning by the GBI, a uh, Dr. Howard and another assisting doctor. Somewhere around 4.30 in the morning, that Friday morning, the Clayton County and the Henry County sheriffs both met at the murder scene, Clayton County had bought a, a generator with some lights and proceeded to search the crime scene for any other evidence. Somewhere around nine o'clock, nine thirty, they found a shotgun shell, a Winchester Western double-lock buck, and then about five minutes later they found another shell, and after a while they wrapped up, but they took the shells and took them back to the Sheriff's Office. Now those shells were sent the next day to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the GBI office in Atlanta. And they sat there for a while and they continued on pretty much the rest of November with an investigation of trying to figure out who had murdered these people. But on on that Sunday, November the 10th, 3 days after the murders, lead detective Philip Howard sent two officers out to Jerry's house to get his shotgun and bring it in. They wanted to test fire it just to clear him as a suspect. Because after all he was he was the guy that called in these murders, and he was standing there with a 12-gauge shotgun alongside the rope when they, when they, when they showed up at the scene. So they took the shotgun behind the courthouse on Sunday and fired three rounds. Now the test fire was on November the 10th, Sunday. On December the 2nd, those shells were delivered to the GBI two shells. Now after a, a day or two, Officer Tommy Floyd, Sergeant Tommy Floyd, received a call from the Kelly Fight, the ballistics expert for the GBI. And Kelly Fight told him, he says, you need to bring that shotgun down here to the GBI. He says, those test shells that you fired match the shells found at the murder scene. And we need that gun down here. So Sheriff's Park went out to Jerry's house, took his gun, took him up, loaded him up, took him down to the station for further questioning. And the shotgun was taken to the Georgia Bureau of Investigations lab. Where Kelly Fike fired two more rounds through Jerry's gun. And the two shells that were found at the murder scene and the test shells three test shells that uh, they fired on Sunday behind the courthouse and the two that ballistics expert Kelly fight fired all matched and Jerry was arrested immediately. Within 95 days or so, Jerry Banks had been arrested, tried, convicted, and sentenced to die in Georgia's electric chair by the end of January 1975. Jerry Banks was on his way to Reidsville State Prison in South Georgia to be executed. But before they get a chance to uh, transport him down to Reidsville, Andrew Eberhardt came into town and told the judge that well, he was astonished to read in the papers that Jerry Banks was sentenced to die in the chair. He proceeded to tell the judge that he had approached Jimmy Glass before the first trial, that he uh, had a business trip to go out of town and told Mr. Glass, the sheriff, uh, if he wanted him to cancel that trip, he would gladly do it, he just wanted to know uh, when the trial was going to be so he could make those arrangements he wanted to be at the trial. And the the sheriff told uh, Mr. Everhart that he didn't think his testimony would be necessary. So therefore, he missed the first trial. When he came back in town, he had read in the paper that uh, the mysterious motors could not be could not be uh, located. But yet that night at the murder scene, Mr. Everhart uh, had talked to him. Today. Well, after uh, Mr. Everhart talked to the judge, it was decided the jury would be granted a new trial. So in November of 1975 of the same year, Jerry Banks was retried, Andrew Eberhardt appeared and he testified about the fact that Jerry Banks had flagged him down. But the fact that he was not a witness to anything, didn't see anything, wasn't there when the shots were fired and the shells found at the murder scene matched the shells fired to Gary Banks' gun, he was again found guilty and sentenced to death. This time he was sentenced to Jackson, Georgia State Prison where he would be electrocuted there. The jury spent close to six years on death row and was 30 days away from being executed. When he was released from prison, technicality. The DA's office made a statement that there was a possibility that evidence could have been mishandled. They did not believe that anybody had mishandled any evidence but in all fairness he said he could not take Jerry back to trial a third time so he was set free. Now was this act an act of Jerry being exonerated? I've been told that if you got into the courthouse and found the written paperwork by the DA, Jerry was probably exonerated. In fact, Jerry's lawyer, Judge Wade Crumley, told me he was exonerated. But on the courthouse steps, Jerry Banks was anything but exonerated. Just another man getting off death row on a technicality. That's the way they left this story. About three months later the Sheriff's Department, and Henry County, received a call to so go out to Jerry's house where they found Jerry and his wife shot dead in his front yard. And at that time this case really became closed and cold. And it's never been looked at not one time since until I investigated in 2002 and I'll tell you what my investigation showed. Okay, we're going to end here, but there's much more that we want to cover on the sins of Henry County, the actual murders of Melody Ann Hartfield and Marvin King. It's going to get very detailed. I'm going to create a timeline so you can follow and uh, see uh, What tricks were pulled to frame this young black man for murder he did not commit? Now, I'd like to thank you for uh, listening to my podcast. I have uh, the ability to see how many people listen, what cities, what countries, and it gives me some idea. Oddly enough, uh, well, I do have people in Canada, Africa, and the Philippines, uh, and people all over the United States. Well, what I need is feedback. Uh, if, if you think that I'm wasting my time and your time, uh, let me know. If you're able to understand what I'm saying and follow me in this process, please let me know. I need to know if I'm wasting my time. Because I sure as hell do not want to waste my money. This is not an inexpensive project to put on. I'm not asking for anything in return. So with that said, I'd like you to share with your friends the fact that I have this podcast and that I am going to start tying these four murders together and show a connection of corrupt officials in Georgia and how they've gotten away with it all these years. And I'd like to bring justice to the victims. So I thank you, and I'm going to get to work on Episode 5. A BSTV production.